You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. Welcome in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's Columbus Day. Uh, how are you doing? It looks like maybe you took this, today's federal holiday off from uh, shaving, possibly bathing. Listen, man, I don't need you judging me. I'm just saying it was is last week. It seemed like I was the one who was about to embark on a hobo lifestyle. But then this week you show up looking looking like you came straight from the rail yard. Maybe I'm growing a beard. Did you think about that? That would be incredible. Is that is that what's going on here? Maybe. I don't know. Who can say? Who can say? Well, I think the person who could say is probably you. No, I feel like there's a lack, there's a little blurry line, like where you go from just not shaving out of laziness to where you get to the point where you might actually be doing something on purpose. Having a beard. Have you ever had a beard before? No, I can't. I get too itchy. Yeah, I have I the same out. problem. And you know, uh, whenever I have had a beard in the past, uh, especially during the winter months, during the cold times, which here in Montana is about nine or ten months of the year, uh, I feel like the uh, the theory of the beard is that it's supposed to keep your face warm in, during the during the cold months. But I've always found exactly the opposite is true because you breathe in it, and then the like bits of moisture from your breath get like they freeze, and yeah. it actually makes my face colder. I hadn't thought about that, and of course since. Us as professional sports writers, we spend so much time outside of our homes just working on a road cruise out there in the, the winter months. Chopping wood. Chopping wood. Out in the backyard. Digging holes. Yeah, it'd be tough on us. Anyway, uh, Ben, this week's co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to us in three rounds. In round number one, it's too bad UFC 166 isn't going down in the UFC circa 2002, because if it were, you know would have some awesome tagline like UFC 166 Heavy Metal, or UFC 166 Weight of the World. Oh, that's not bad. Instead, all we get is the slogan, History is Written by the Winner, which is really just a bastardization of a famous William Churchill quote, History is Written by the Victor. Except I guess if they used that, a bunch of dumbasses would try to run around figuring out who Victor is the whole time. So maybe their hands were tied. Did you say William Churchill? Yeah, Winston Churchill. Did I say William? Yeah, I think you did. God damn it. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> In round number two, Diego Sanchez is a 5-1 to one underdog against Gilbert Melendez in their fight on Saturday night. But come on, that sort of just makes you want to watch it even more, right? And in round number three, Rusamar Palharas finally got punished for holding a submission too long. But because there has to be controversy about everything now, I guess there is controversy about that too. All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Roberto. He, he writes, I wanted to touch on the alleged nine-month suspension of Ben Rothwell. I looked at his Wikipedia page and did, quick, did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation on the average time span between fights. Here's a table, and he presents to us this table that, that shows uh, Ben Rothwell's last six fights. Not a bad little uh, table, actually. No, it's, it's a good-looking good looking table, considering he didn't use Excel or anything to put it together for us. Uh, so, yeah, Ben Rothwell fights... 
uh, Velasquez in October 2009. Then he fights Gilbert Ivel in June of 2010. All of this according to the table, yeah, I should eight months say. months later. Uh, then he fights Mark Hunt, uh, September 2011. 15 months later. Then he fights uh, Brendan Schaub, April 2012. Seven months. Man, you are quick with the math. I'm, I'm impressed. It's right next to it. It's written, the number's right next to it. Oh, the it's table. in the table. Hmm. The table has everything, man. The table has everything. Congratulations, Roberto. Uh, then he fights Gonzaga, January 2013. Nine months. And then uh, Brandon Vera, August of 2013. Seven months. And then uh, Roberto f- finishes out by saying, an average, uh, Ben Rothwell fights every 9.2 months. So where is this suspension again? You know, this is a good point, And I yeah. have to admit something that I did not uh, initially consider. And when, that's a point backed up by a table, and yeah, which makes your any point so much stronger. That's right. You just can't argue against a point that has a table to no, go along with it's it. It's figure 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I hadn't initially considered this when the UFC announced that it was going uh, above and beyond what the Athletic Commission was going to do to suspend Ben Rothwell for what we were led to believe are elevated levels of testosterone. Uh, and I guess for the UFC, maybe it's like the perfect suspension because it gives you the opportunity to make it look like you are really slapping Ben Rothwell on the on the wrist for his testosterone thing when in in reality you're you know he can probably just come back and fight on, on his normal schedule. Well, I think in this case because uh, I've wondered this about other suspensions in the past too. Like you look at Bruce Marpal Harris's suspension, uh, at least according to the Brazilian Athletic Commission, uh, he's got like four months for holding the heel hook too long on my, Mike Pierce, which a four-month suspension for a fighter really isn't that meaningful. I mean, you might fight ideally every three months uh, if you're healthy. So having to sit out an extra month wouldn't be that bad. This one, I feel like Ben Rothwell's schedule is a little different to have him fight on average every 9.2 months. Most fighters fight more frequently than that. So uh, in theory, then, the nine-month suspension is a little bit more meaningful to most fighters. It's just if you look at Ben Rothwell's recent history, doesn't seem like it will impact him that much. But then he's dealt with injuries and stuff like that, too. Yeah, I guess you could also make the point, if you're Ben Rothwell, maybe the best thing that could happen to you is to be able to luck into a much bigger fight than you deserve because someone else falls out with an injury, and there you are coming off your your berserker dance KO of of Brandon Vera. You can kind of slide into that spot. Now that he's suspended for nine months, he's obviously not going to get that opportunity, even if it did arise. So I think that there's a couple of different ways you can make the case that this nine-month suspension really does hurt Ben Rothwell, although Roberto and his table... Uh, bring up some compelling evidence that that it's not really that that big of a deal. And that's a, it's a good topic in general for fighters that I just don't think that for most of them suspensions are as harmful or as like uh, as likely to bring about a behavioral change as fines. I feel like that's that's how you get people's attention is you fine them, make them write a check, uh, and then you know they'll they'll have to pay attention to that with a suspension. You know, you don't know how how often you're going to fight anyway. I mean, if you have to sit out close to a year like like Ben Rothwell is doing, then obviously, like you said, when you're a heavyweight, there's always heavyweights pulling out of fights and stuff that opportunities you're you're likely going to miss because of that. Um, But telling a fighter who does most of his work just kind of on his own, it's not like he's a a baseball player or something where he's out there every day anyway – uh, telling him that he's got to stay home a little longer doesn't seem like you're you're hitting him as hard as uh, a financial penalty. I think that's how you really uh, get guys to knock off some of this crap. 
The second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Eddie P. He writes, Does anyone else have a problem with Dong Young Kim's victory over Eric Silva on Wednesday night? Fifteen seconds before Kim connects with the left hand that ended the fight, he grabbed the fence in one of the most blatant fence grabs in recent memory to defend a takedown. Silva had him by the waist and tried to pull Kim backward, and Kim held onto the fence reminiscent of a child being hauled off to bed before they finished their milk and cookies. Also, editor's note... Don't feed your kid cookies right before bed. That's a pro tip from Chad Dundas. They will not sleep. Hardened parent. Eddie P. goes on, Do you think referees should enforce the holding the cage rule more strictly since all fighters are notified of this before every fight? And maybe instead of taking a point away, if the fence grab prevents a takedown, stop the action, and restart them on the ground. Interesting that you should write in, Eddie, because this, the you know, the Kim-Eric Silva fight is another fight that... uh underscores my previous point that I've made on the podcast many times before, which is always cheat in an MMA fight. As long as that cheating happens somewhere uh, between the opening bell and the final result, you're pretty much good to go because (laughs) you're only going to get a warning. And that's sort of a worst case scenario. We've talked about the other, uh, the actual uh, positives of cheating. And and I think Kim points one out here, uh, which is, you know, if you are a, a guy who has a reasonable chance of knocking your opponent out, you might as well grab the, grab the cage because as long as you get to keep the fight on the feet, even if they do take a point away, and if you end up winning by knockout, like your your strategy might be, although, you know, for, for Kim, I don't know that if that's yeah. exactly what he thought going in. But uh, if you end up winning the fight by stoppage, the fact that they took a point away doesn't even doesn't even factor in. So, yeah, you should always you should always cheat. You know, what do you think, though, about because I reacted that one saying this is an instance of why you need to immediately take a point away rather than the warning the guy, because that's a. Uh, violation of the rules that changes the fight. And like we've noted, and like ADP notes here, these guys know the damn rules. It's not like... Mostly. Most of them know the damn rules. They're told the rules ahead of time. They've been doing this for a while. It's like, you know, in the NFL, if every time there was pass interference, you got to do it once while the referee then took you aside and explained to you what pass interference was and told you not to do it again. Uh, and then the next time you did it, they, they threw a flag. They should just take a point away on an instance like that where it clearly has an effect. It's one thing if, you know, they're kind of tussling against the fence and one of the guys puts his fingers in there rather when, when he's just trying to put his hand up against there and it doesn't really seem to affect anything. Yeah, then you tell him, hey, watch your hands in the fence, something like that. This one, though, change the fight. I say go ahead and take a point away. What do you think about this suggestion, though, that he was trying to prevent a takedown, so restart them on the ground? Like it. Really? I've, I've advocated for it in the past. Have you? I, yeah. Have I, you really? Yes. I think it's the it's the only way to make it not worth it to grab the fence, right? Because just like I explained, if you're a stand-up fighter, even if you get a point taken away and you end up winning by knockout, you know, you essentially were incurred zero penalty for keeping the fight where you wanted it to be. But where do you start it on the ground? Like, wh- does he get side control? Does he get half guard? Like, how how do you decide in that situation where they never got far enough into the takedown? For us to know even if the takedown was going to work, let alone what position they would have settled into, what do you do there? You have to get that team of Japanese guys that stands outside the <laughs> ring with the and keeps guys from falling through the ropes. You have to just let them kind of like put them in position. because yeah, they were a team of real pros too. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good point. You actually just kind of uh, unwrapped that entire idea because I don't know how you would make sure that you got them in the right position on but, the ground. Because I get what he's saying here and I get what you're saying that even if you take a point away, it might not have changed. Because if you take a point away and then restart them from neutral corners – 
who's to say Kim doesn't still land that Hail Mary left hand that even he admitted was kind of lucky afterwards. Uh, so then the, the point wouldn't matter. But restarting them on the ground seems like kind of how in football, no matter what the penalties are, you know, if you're driving down there on, on the goal line, the defense just keeps committing penalties. They just move you half the distance of the goal closer and, and start you over on first down. They never just like, okay, you get the touchdown. We right. just award it to you and put points on the board. That doesn't happen. I feel like it's the same kind of thing here. Like that's where you start to get into kind of a, a speculative fiction approach to right. refereeing. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It, it probably becomes hard to enforce uh, at that point. Um, how about just straight to mount? What do you think? <laughs> you grab the fence, other guy gets mount. How about you have to stand there and put your hands behind your back and close your eyes and the guy gets to hit you once? I like it. I like that. I like that. I can, low blows included? And, Does he get to just run up and, and punch you in the, in the, in the junk? Uh, no, that's only if you've hit him in the junk. Oh, then, okay. Right. Yeah. An, uh, sort also, of an eye for an eye type scenario there. Two for flinching. Okay. Right. Uh, let's move on. I feel like we've exhausted that topic. Uh, then the, the next piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jeremy Sexton. He writes, is it just me or is the MMA community overrating fights these days? Jones Gustafson was a good fight. It was a great fight, but greatest fight of all time. I don't even think it was the best fight of this year. Parenthetically, Condit Hendricks is my pick. If you wondered, we didn't. Yeah. Then we had Jessamine Duke versus uh, Raquel Pennington on Tough, which was good, but was talked about like it was the second coming of Griffin Bonner. Is there something I'm missing? No, I think you pretty much got it. I think we have been uh, overrating fights a little bit as of late, sort of playing into that modern uh, mindset that whatever the last thing you just saw was is the greatest thing of all time. And he hits the he hits it right on the head, I think, with Jones Jones Gustafson because yeah, that was a great fight, probably put it on the list for consideration for fight of the year. But as, as far as like people talking about how it was the greatest fight of all time, no, not even no, not even close. What do you say is the greatest fight of all time? The greatest fight or greatest fight that I that I saw live. I greatest fight. Greatest fight of all time uh, was well, maybe it was uh, the one that we did see live. Dan Henderson, Shogun Hua. You know, see, previous I, to that, I would have said the Matt Hughes Frank Trigg fight, which I also saw live, which I think was at UFC 152. Is the one where uh, you mean 52? Yeah, yes, that's right. UFC 52, UFC ought 52. Uh, uh, the one where, where Frank Trigg hits Matt Hughes low, but the ref doesn't see it. And Matt Hughes is on the brink of losing his title until he has that Superman comeback where he picks Frank Trigg up and, and walks across the cage with him. And, and w when you were there live, when he did that, when he picked him up, it was sort of like everyone in the arena simultaneously stood up and was like, what? All at the same time. It was awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I think that this is one of the difficulty in looking back and saying, like, what was the, the greatest fight? Because it gets tinged with, like, how we remember it and also, like, the importance we assigned to that bout. Because do we mean, like, just the most exciting to watch or, like, the most exciting with the highest stakes? Like, there's this weird calculus that goes on when we're trying to figure that stuff out. Because I remember watching the... uh uh Paul Daly, Nick Diaz fight in Strike Force, uh, which I was there for live, and thinking, well, that's the greatest one round fight I think I've ever seen. Diaz gets dropped, comes back, uh, drops Daly, and beats him at the very end of the round. It was just crazy, intense one round fight. Uh, but then there's also, I think, you do get affected, like when you're there, uh, good seems great. You know, great seems greatest. I think that happens more when you're actually in the building. Uh, and I think 
what we know about what comes later can affect our like how we perceive those old fights because like jones gustafson i think that was an awesome fight as i was sitting there watching and i was thinking holy shit this is awesome i don't know if it's the greatest fight ever but i do think best fight of the year i think it's better than condit condit hendrix but w then we get to this point where we're comparing like awesome versus awesome you know like they're all really good fights i don't know how much it benefits us to sit around and talk about which was awesomer although i do think the Jessamine duke raquel pennington i mean that was a good fight uh i also think though that it benefited from being a good fight for the reality show where there aren't that many of them so uh, when there when there is a really good fight and a really two evenly matched fighters it stands out a lot more wait though what what are you weighing in on as greatest fight of all time since you just asked me that's tough. Um, I might say Dan Henderson Shogun Hua. That was a good one. It was. That was a really good one. I mean, let's be honest, though. The only reason that we even have these conversations, like what was the fight of the year, is so dudes who write for MMA websites have something that they can write that week in between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Right? When there's nothing going on, you need desperately need something. Need a and list. maybe even something that you can crank out the week before because you and your family are going back to Delaware or wherever you're from. Oh, God you're not going to be plugged into the to this to the scene so you need to get a little work done ahead of time so you crank out this greatest fight of the year top 10 list and and set it to automatically post because you know that the editor is going to be five inches into the eggnog by tuesday <laughs> afternoon he's not going to be paying attention well you got it all figured out right? don't you anyway last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from john massier or as we would say in montana john massier Bjorn Rebney says he will waive all matching rights if Ben Askren is given an immediate title shot against GSP. They have nothing to gain by bringing in Askren. I assume he means the UFC. Uh, if he hypothetically beats GSP, Dana wouldn't want a champ to be even more conservative than Askren currently is. If he lost, the UFC would have a gatekeeper that could crush all up-and-comers. With the UFC cutting fighters with similar reputations for being boring grapplers, I see no chance of Dana White jumping on that deal. Discuss. Yeah, it's another like crafty little move on the part of Bjorn Rebney, right? Kind of a scheme. Feels like a scheme, doesn't now, it? Now, didn't correct me if I'm wrong timeline-wise, but didn't it first come out that Rebney was just going to let Askren go completely if the UFC like made him a matching offer, and then maybe a little bit later we found out that he wanted to have this stipulation where they had to give him a, a title shot? Yeah. Because that makes it seem shady a little bit. It does. Well, at first it seemed like... He was saying, well, I don't know if we'll try too hard to re-sign Ben Askren. Then it was, we'll let you go right away as long as the UFC gives you an immediate title shot. Uh, and then it was, and if the UFC doesn't do that, because the UFC so far I don't think has responded at all. I don't think we've even talked to Ben Askren according to Askren. Uh, then it was like, okay, well, if the UFC doesn't do anything, then I guess we'll try and re-sign him. Uh, seems like all part of a, a scheme to either foist Ben Askren onto the UFC or if you do re-sign him – Keep the, the price low. Right. Don't get into a bidding war over that guy. And he, I mean, because he ain't getting an immediate title shot coming in straight in the door. No way, man. He's got to have at least one uh, get his feet wet in the octagon fight, which history tells us dudes typically lose anyway if they come in as as this highly touted free agent. Uh, it just seems like something Ben or uh, Bjorn Rebney and his boys thought of when they were sitting around. To and me, they were like, and if they don't respond, it'll make them look like pussies. Yeah, right? exactly. That's what I, you know, I had a, a little, a, a short column about this. And that was kind of my, one of the, the options I explored was that this could be an offer you make because you want people to hear you making it, especially after you took all that heat for going to great lengths to keep 
Eddie Alvarez, uh, and then took some shit when they, they first said they weren't going to try and re-sign Ben Askren. If you make this offer and then the UFC doesn't jump on it, then you can say, well, hey, we tried to give him an opportunity to go over there and do a champ versus champ fight. Uh, the UFC didn't want it. They, they were, were too scared. They were scared of him. They were scared of this man. Um, so now he's back in Bellator, the man that, that the UFC wanted no part of. Didn't didn't want to let him get close to their champion because they knew it would happen. Maybe make a promo video of him as a giant walking through a city skyscrape, just like knocking <laughs> over buildings and shit with a flag on his shoulder. Yeah. Knocking over those communist buildings. Seems weird, though, that the UFC wouldn't even make an offer to Ben Askren, though, doesn't it? I would think that they would. Well, I know where you come down on this, but but I, I feel like he should at least get a chance to come over and fight where all the best fighters in the world fight. Wait, I where, do I, where do I come down on we this? We already talked about this, and you just made your ridiculous statement about what you, how the rest of his career plays out in the octagon. You're mischaracterizing my position. I, that's what I think would, would happen to him in the UFC, although I want, to see, I want us to get the opportunity to find out if I'm right. I definitely want to see him fight in the UFC. If he stays in Bellator, he's just going to keep doing exactly what he's doing to these guys who aren't anywhere near good enough to stop him. I really want to see if he can do that in the UFC. I don't think he can, at least not with this degree of success. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a future question, comment, concern for the co-main event podcast, you want to call me out for my lack of knowledge of the first names of famous world leaders or call Ben Folks out for backtracking on his Ben Askren position. You know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. As for right now, we're going to roll straight into round number one. Ben, the top three heavyweights in the world and Roy Nelson are all in action this weekend at UFC 166. Ooh. Ooh. And I guess you can't complain about that. Let's start at the top of the card where Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos meet for a third time. Are you buying the forecast that this will be the, the last time we see these guys fight, that whoever wins this will have the, the deciding uh the deciding leg of the three-part series, and uh, and is there any way f- that you feel like we can forecast what's going to happen here? Because, man, I feel like anything. I feel like this could go either way. I, I really have no idea what's going to happen this weekend. You know, I hope that this is the last one because I feel like that's the point of a rubber match, right? As long as there's nothing weird, you know, and as sometimes will happen in this crazy sport, as long as there's not like an early stoppage or like, uh, a blatant judge's robbery, something like that. I feel like this should be it. Best of three. I feel like that's a perfectly valid way to decide things between two enormous men. Now yeah, you're right. There is a the, a certain magic to the rule of thirds. I guess you would say that that uh, we do a three fight series here, and the guy that comes out with two victories is allowed to move on and be remembered by history as as the guy who gets to to be the victor. Yes. As we say. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just thinking heavyweight division, shallowest, shallowest division in the sport. I think the odds are pretty good that even after this fight, Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos go on to whip the shit out of almost everybody else that they fight. Uh, and I, I could see a fourth fight somewhere down the road, even even if there is no uh, irregularities in, into how this one ends. Um, 
and you know, and I don't really have a problem with that. The, the first two fights have, have both been uh, pretty enjoyable, obviously distinctly different action and outcomes. In the first one, we saw uh, Junior Dos Santos put his put his hand in Cain Velasquez's ear and win uh, via very quick knockout. The second one went more like a lot of us were expecting the first one to go, where Cain Velasquez kind of uh, wears Dos Santos out over the course of a much longer fight I don't know, uh, and okay. also st- stunned him with a punch in the first, which turned the tide. Now, that's, I think, the difference. I, and I think that this is a weird thing that we do with our perceptions and our memories of those two fights. It's because the first one uh, where Dos Santos just you know lands one big punch, knocks him out basically, and that's it over in a little over a minute. And afterwards we hear that they both had knee injuries, you know, whose was more severe, who was more affected by theirs, whatever. Um, but then the second fight, you know, it's a, it's a pretty even fight until Cain Velasquez lands that one big punch that doesn't knock Junior Dos Santos out, merely knocks him silly. He never seems to fully recover from either that or the beating that he took in the immediate aftermath of that punch. Um, he seems like he can never get his legs back under him because of that one punch. And yet that one we look back on and be like, okay, well, that was Cain Velasquez's dominant victory where the first one was Junior Dos Santos's fluke win, kind right. of. Yeah. Where... Like, what's the difference that Junior Dos Santos didn't go out and Cain Velasquez did? Like, how does that necessarily translate to a more dominant victory for one of those guys? Yeah, it's unfair to Junior Dos Santos, really, to sort of undermine that that yeah. that first win. But I think why you do that? I think that they had that has more to do with how people with people's expectations pre-fight. I mean, Cain Velasquez was a very trendy pick prior to their first fight. Uh, I, you know, they, they had that spot as, as the main event on the special Fox show that was designed to uh, kick off the UFC's relationship with the near, their new network television partner. I think a lot of people expected Cain Velasquez to win that fight. And because it was so short, because Dos Santos was sort of a surprise winner, uh, you know, in a, in a minute and a, in one second or whatever it was, uh, I think people were more inclined to, to call it a fluke. And, and then when the second fight, uh, was more Cain Velasquez's style of fight. He was able to, to better set the pace, was able to, to, you know, inflict his game plan on Junior Dos Santos. I think that, uh, a, a lot of people saw that as, as, uh, you know, only, uh, the confirmation of what they thought they were going to see in the first one. So maybe it's confirmation bias. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the point I think is that now that we've seen these first two fights, we approach this third one. I was one of the people that prior to the second fight was pretty, pretty, uh, uh, I was pretty sure Cain Velasquez was going to win. I thought that there would be a fight where he was able to come in and 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 uh, do his game plan better than he was able to do in the first fight. That turned out to be right. Third fight, oh, I have no. Don't hurt yourself stinking, patting yourself on the back. I have over there. no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen in this third fight. Uh, it, it could be an, another one where where Junior Dos Santos really handles Cain Velasquez and, and ends him with an early stoppage, or Cain Velasquez could go out there and, and we could see a repeat of the second fight. I really don't know, and that is one of the things that I feel like makes this fight interesting. These guys are so evenly matched. I think we can both agree that they're they're the two top heavyweights in the world at this moment in time, and uh, I feel like we're headed into a thing where where nothing will surprise me and anything could happen. Yeah, you know, I still think that regardless of however Cain Velasquez might have been diminished in that first fight, there's in this one there's always going to be the chance that Junior Dos Santos sticks one in his ear again. And I think we've seen that Cain uh, Velasquez doesn't take a punch quite as well as Junior Dos Santos does. And to his credit, Junior Dos Santos takes one like the man is made of granite. 
so I, he always has that that capability. However, I think the thing that tips it in Velasquez's favor for me is pace. That the same thing that guys who train with him always say, and that we started to see, I think, in that that second fight, is that even when Junior Dos Santos is defending the takedowns pretty well. Cain uh, Velasquez has such a high pace for a heavyweight that he just wears you down. And I think that that contributes to then, you know, you get too tired to land that big shot if you're Junior Dos Santos. And the, the more tired you get, the more open you get to to eating one of those right hands again. Or just, you know, will you still be able to to stop those takedowns in the third round? Uh, because Cain Velasquez is still going to have it in him to shoot for him. Like, you never see that guy looking like he's worn out. I think that's really what makes the difference for me here. I'm picking Velasquez, but like you, you know, would I be shocked if Dos Santos goes out there, lands one big punch, and ends it? No, but I think that that's how we see him winning it if we do. I don't think you see uh, Junior Dos Santos just staying on the outside and, and soundly outboxing Cain Velasquez uh, en route to a decision or even a late stoppage. I think if he if he stops it, he stops it in the first round. I think if he has to go uh, into, you know, past the second round with Cain Velasquez, he's in trouble. All right, let's talk a little bit about the co-main event where you have Daniel Cormier coming in to make his second UFC appearance. He comes in off his decision win over Frank Mir uh, in April of this year, facing Roy Nelson, uh, who comes in under a, a slightly different circumstance. He's coming off his kind of ugly loss to Stipe Miocic at, at, at UFC 161 back in June. Cormier is vowing that after this fight, he'll go down to light heavyweight, even if he doesn't get an immediate title shot. Uh, so sort of what we've been hearing from him for a while now. Uh, what happens here? Cormier comes in still undefeated. He's 12 and 0. Uh, he's got a lot of hype behind him. Um, he, he's, he's cracked into the, to the heavyweight top five, maybe the heavyweight top three, depending on where you have him rated. Uh, the, do you see that this, this could be a trap fight for, for him coming in against a Roy Nelson that I think a lot of people expect him to beat? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people expect him to beat him. I honestly, I don't see how Roy Nelson beats him. I mean, how? What lands one big, one big punch and that's it? Cormier can take a shot. We've seen that. Take a shot from from Roy Nelson, though, even though he's the, as you called him, the incredible shrinking man these days. Well, he's lost a lot of that uh, natural girth. And, that and he, who knows, maybe lost some of his punching power uh, with that, along with that girth. But you know, sure, it, the whole disclaimer that anything can happen, MMA, whatever, anybody can get knocked out. Um, but. I don't worry about Daniel Cormier's ability to take one of those punches from Roy Nelson if he has to. Obviously, he'd probably rather not. Um, but I also think, though, that Cormier, with uh, the threat of his wrestling and his own punching power and his own speed and athleticism, uh, I, I don't think Roy Nelson can do a whole lot to that guy. Yeah, this does shape up as one of those fights where we see Roy Nelson taking a terrible beating over three rounds, sort of the archetypal Roy Nelson loss, where uh, he doesn't necessarily get stopped because we all know he's 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 as tough as a bag full of nails, but uh, you know he also didn't, isn't really able to make it competitive over fifteen minutes. I think that's the kind of fight that it, it shapes up to be, you know, as we head into it. I will say though, heavyweight division. Uh, margin for error is so small in these fights. It seems like if you make one mistake and a guy with this tremendous knockout power like a Junior Dos Santos or like a Roy Nelson is able to to put his hand on the off switch, 
feel like anyone can really win. And I don't know if that, if, if that makes me feel like, uh, like the heavyweight division at the highest level is a coin flip because I, I'm sort of uncomfortable with that notion. Uh, but, but it, it seems to be true that a lot of times all it takes is one mistake and whoever gets to land the first big punch, uh, ends up the winner. Well, what I'm more interested in, I mean, I think Daniel Cormier could certainly lose this if he goes in there and takes Roy Nelson too lightly, if he assumes that it's just kind of a gimme. Um, I'm interested to see how he looks when he get on, gets on the scales because he said he's already kind of in the process of his, his slimming down, uh, which I talked to him for a, a story we we're doing for the USA Today pullout, shameless plug, uh, and he said that it's gone a lot better than he's expected it to, just making some like minor dietary tweaks. Uh, but I want to see the goal here seems to be come in kind of as light as you can for this heavyweight fight as par- like part of the move down to light heavyweight. I'm interested to see both how he looks, what he weighs in at, and then how he performs to see if it has any effect on him. Uh, because I think that Daniel Cormier as a light heavyweight, that's exciting to me. That's, that's an exciting prospect. Cause I do have him as, t- you know, top three heavyweights right now. Uh, and you know, if he wants to move down and wait, I asked him if he thought it was because he wants to avoid Cain Velasquez, doesn't want to fight his friend or if because he, he thinks that that's where he legitimately should be. And he says that it's both. I mean, I think that that guy, he's still going to be a little bit shorter at light heavyweight, but, uh, you know, his speed and, and just his overall athletic ability in his wrestling game, I think he could be a trouble for a lot of people down there. I fight with him and John Jones. That gets me excited. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he would be a welcome addition to that 205-pound weight class, which it needs all the help it can get at this point with a dominant champion that that uh, hadn't really been tested up until his most recent fight. So, yeah, I would be excited to see how, how Daniel Cormier would do physically at, at the lower weight, and, and I think you're right. That could be one of the more interesting things to watch uh, this weekend uh, where I think we all expect him to come out on top over Roy Nelson, although puncher's chance always exists uh that's going to do it for round number one uh, Ma- uh master tweet theater is up next we've got sir nigel longstock here he's gonna take over the mic and uh, lead us in a rendition of that which begins right now time again we welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir i am fresh to death (laughs) well that seems debatable uh i see though that your winter beard is really coming in nicely yes sir it is red and majestic i can soon play any role of a person with a beard. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Not really. Uh, those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets. Chad and I are going to try and guess which MMA figure is responsible for each tweet. Uh, and a good time will be had by all. Sir Nigel, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask, is there a theme this week? Yes, there is, sir, but it's a little bit diffuse. You know, the theme for the week is, Hey, Fleshlight. What? Hey, Fleshlight, for reasons that will become obvious with the first tweet, but you know it expresses something larger. You mean fleshlight the the uh, you the put marital aid? You put your penis in it. Oh, okay. What? I've never heard of this. <laughs> Where would you learn about something like this? Yeah. Obviously, some sort of pervert meeting. You've got some googling to do. And hey, hmm. before we start, no more bullshit from the Iron Sheik. Am I right? No, no, nothing at all in here from the Iron Sheik. Well, I I guess at least uh, we have some. This week, uh, a theme where it'll be hopefully more recognizable than last time, because that was some shit. 
Hey, flashlight. <laughs> a longing cry of a struggling nation. <laughs> okay, when you're ready, begin and, and fire at will. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Hey, flashlight. Y'all should make a double-sided one of me. One side my molded ween, other my butt. You know, for the gays. Gold mine. Ha! That's got to be War Machine. I right? God, I was going to say War Machine. And again, if it is War Machine, this is just one too many times where how he loves to tell us how he's not gay or into gay dudes, but keeps talking about it. Yeah. I don't know. It's got to be him, though, right? Well, I can't think who else it would be. I can we both say War Machine? I'm saying War Machine. Let's both say War Machine. It is! It is <laughs> War Machine! Just fascinated by how much gay men want to have sex with him. Yeah. Just a never-ending source of uh, uh, of interest for War Machine, uh, who, of course, is totally not into that. No, no. He's just cool with it. You know, he's just a, just an open-minded guy. And he's if they want to make a silicon mold of his butt, silicone, <laughs> silicone is an important difference. <laughs> well, uh... I look forward to an update on we when we hear back on whether Fleshlight has taken him up on that offer. Mm. Tweet the second. Congrats to at Ashley MMA one. So glad she beat that freak piece of shit. I happen to, I have to know a little something about this one. Uh, this, if I'm not mistaken, is big sexy Sean McCorkle congratulating uh, Ashley Evans Smith for her win over Fallon Fox, who, in, for the purposes of this tweet, is the freak piece of shit in question, according to Sean McCorkle. Well, I'm going to have to take your word for it, and uh, I'll just sit back here and in- enjoy, I guess. <laughs> it is. It is Sean McCorkle, and I have included him in this Master Tweet Theater so that I can present him with the Lifetime Achievement Award for being the same gender that he was born all of his life. <laughs> Way to go, Sean McCorkle. Still a man. Last time we will ever hear from you on Master Tweet Theater because you are a dick. <laughs> but I hear that the Lifetime Achievement Award comes with a free flashlight. Yes. Yes, it does. He can make a molded one, but he's not a freak, so he'll just, you know, put flowers in it or whatever. <laughs> well done. <clears throat> tweet the third. This is a two-part tweet. Oh, good. So tweet 3A. Quickly burn off two plus inches of stomach fat while losing up to 30 pounds of fat in less than 28 days with long URL. 3B. Disregard that! I have no idea where that's come from! Well, Chad, do you want to go first? Well, the use of the word disregard is a real stumper here. And then (laughs) I have no idea where that's come from. Where that's come from. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to guess Michael Bisping. See, I was I was also thinking British, yeah, where that's come from. Because of the syntax. Yeah. Uh, you said Bisping. I figure I'm just going to go ahead and cover all our bases and say Dan Hardy. Okay, good, yeah. Both fine guesses, both as usual wrong. It is, in fact, Randy Couture. Oh. Well, I guess that makes sense. Old guys not understanding Twitter yeah. spam or that they've been hacked or whatever. Yeah, to him it just seems like magic, or that stuff just shows up on his Twitter feed. He has no idea where that has come from. Yeah, we were doing so good, too. Yeah, we were. Also, come on, Randy Couture, couldn't you have seen that and figured that it was just one of your many, like, workout routine tape things that you were selling, and you you, you don't know how you accidentally posted an ad for your own stuff? Come on, hasn't he been involved in tons of that shit? Well, it's all fine now. Mr. Couture has changed his password, so I guess just type in Randy69 and see if you can post from his Twitter account. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. 
I liked machete kills, but I have to disagree with casting Mel Gibson as a psychopath. Just didn't seem believable. Huh. Irony. Um, also, how how are we still in keeping with the Hey Fleshlight theme? Hey Fleshlight! You know, I like to think there's a fleshlight that watches over all of us <laughs> via Twitter, caring about our opinions. Hey Fleshlight! All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say Joe Benavidez here. That's a good guess. Uh, Miguel Torres. Fine, sure. Both fine guesses. Both too small. It is in fact Danny Boy Downs, friend of the podcast. Yeah, secretly I thought that could have been Danny Downs, but I didn't just want to guess him, you know, just cause. Yeah, and it's not too small by much. I mean. Danny Downs was a WEC guy. Come on. No, that's true. That's true. But you can tell it's Danny Downs because it implies a rhetorical device, and the device is not simply exclamation points. Well, I'm sure he'll be honored to be featured on the Hey Fleshlight-themed installment of Master Tweet Theater. Hey, Fleshlight. (laughs) Tweet the fifth. Time for a shit, a shower, and a shave. Who am I kidding? Fuck the shave. The poet. Yeah, that's got to be the poet Philip Baroni. It is. It is the poet Philip Baroni. Whom is he kidding? He shall not shave. <laughs> you know, I feel like, though, that's the, the Phil Baroni tweet you select for the Hey Fleshlight themed installment. Because there's got to be something in his timeline way more in line with that theme. You know, the poet has been uncharacteristically quiet, other than knowing that he threw up while lifting weights a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. Yes, and also he intends to once again become an Italian stallion, which, (laughs) I mean, business as usual. (laughs) Hey, fleshlight indeed. Well, Sir Nigel, thanks for stopping by. What do you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've recently begun shooting a young adult drama about a young woman who enters a fantastical world filled with wild beasts, but she cannot join the wild rumpus because she is getting her period for the first time good god it's called where the wild things are you there god it's me margaret and what role do you play i play god (laughs) well that was master tweet theater and that was sir nigel longstock thank you sir Yes! 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 You know what that means, Chad. I see what you're doing. Diego Sanchez comes back in action at UFC 166 to take on last reigning Strikeforce lightweight champion Gilbert Melendez in Melendez's first bout since narrowly missing out on the UFC lightweight title in a split decision loss to Benson Henderson. Now, we talked about how Cormier is one of the heavy favorites on the card against Roy Nelson. Uh, I believe that uh, if not heavier, at least right in the same, you know, five to one prohibitive favorite kind of neighborhood is Gilbert Melendez over Diego Sanchez. Yes. What do you make of this one? Well, I think it's a signpost fight for Diego Sanchez in a lot of ways. You know, he's 31 years old now. He's been sort of a laundry list of injuries over the past few years. Uh, he comes in over that kind of lackluster split decision over Takanori Gomi, where a lot of people, I think, think that he got away with one. 
uh, and was was lucky to emerge from Japan with the victory yeah. in that fight. And missed weight pretty badly. And missed weight. One. It was a very strange fight from Sanchez in a lot of ways. He certainly did not appear to be that kind of bulldog, uh, endless gas tank, attack, attack, attack fighter that we have seen from him over the years. And the guy that we've seen have some of the more exciting, if uh, sloppy, uh, brawl type fights that we've seen in, in recent years uh, in the UFC. So I think that that more than anything, uh, we need to see in this fight an indication of what of which Diego Sanchez we're going to see from here on out. You know, we need to see if he still has what it takes to be that guy that came in off the first season of The Ultimate Fighter and ripped through his first four or five fights in the UFC uh, and then put together another four-fight win streak 2008 to 2009 to earn his lightweight title shot against BJ Penn, or if it, we're going to have sort of a diminishing Diego Sanchez from here on out where he's not quite the guy that, that he used to be and and – for me, I don't think he has to win this fight because I think if if you're picking this going in, obviously Gilbert Melendez is the guy you'd want to go with. But I feel like Diego Sanchez needs to come out and do better than the odds indicate in terms of how he's able to go in there and, and handle Gilbert Melendez. Uh, you know, we all think a Diego Sanchez fight is going to be super exciting. I would like to see him be really competitive in this one and not, not just exciting. You mean you'd like to see him do something other than just – block punches with his face. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd like to see him that that led a friend of ours to refer to him as Matthews with a better gas tank early on in his career. He was a guy, you know, especially who came in uh, during and, ab- and immediately after that first season of The Ultimate Fighter, he had been kind of the toast of the independent MMA scene. I believe he was the king of the cage uh, welterweight champion before he showed up on The Ultimate Fighter. And he was a guy who just had good takedowns. And then once he got you down, just relentless top control, ground and pound and, and good submissions. And it's been a while since we've seen him be that guy, whether it be just from age or because of injuries and stuff like that. But, you know, I would like to see a glimmer of that from him in this fight where he's able to come out and be more competitive than maybe we expect him to be against Gilbert Melendez, uh, because he's still a guy who his only lightweight loss is to BJ Penn. Uh, he's had a lot of up and down performances, but all of his other losses are at welterweight. So I think if you really want to make a case for him being competitive and a contender in this lightweight division, you can still do it. If he, if he is able to look pretty good against Gilbert Melendez. You know, when you said a little bit earlier that he was 31 years old, I actually had to check that here on the internet to make sure that that was... thought he was older, didn't you? Yeah, doesn't he seem older? Well, he's been around forever. I know. He's one of those guys that came came off that first season of The Ultimate Fighter, which seems like it was six lifetimes ago because we've had 300 seasons of the show between then and now. That's true. But he does, and, and it also seems like we've started to see him lately... It seems like uh, the years and some of the hard fights are catching up with him. You know, like that uh, that Martin Cantman fight where he won somehow, uh, but took quite a beating in that one. Or the the BJ Penn fight, the, his his title shot that, that he lost, also took a beating in that one. It seems like some of that has started to take its toll on him. And he's been a guy who has had his troubles outside the cage. You know, has. You know, you you want things to work out for Diego Sanchez in a way because he seems like a really genuine guy who's out there doing the best he can. And yet he also seems like the kind of guy who is in a world that is going to take advantage of him and chew him up and spit him out. And I fear that that's kind of what we're seeing now is the spit out phase. 
Yeah, and I, I talked to Diego Sanchez for last year for a story that that eventually came out in UFC magazine. Uh, um, although it took it took almost a year for it to actually come to publication. So by the time it came out, I, I had wished that I got the opportunity to do a, a longer second interview with him to kind of uh, catch up on the things that had transpired between the the time that I was first able to talk to him. And you're right, he's an incredibly likable guy and is is a guy who is almost too open and honest when you yeah. ask him a question. He's the kind of guy you ask him one question and he'll talk to you for 10 minutes uh, about a lot of stuff that most fighters will just lie about and he'll be really honest about it. And I feel like I came out of that experience, you know, getting the, the chance to talk to him a little bit with with a, a more of a positive feeling about Diego Sanchez than I had going in. I do feel like he's a really likable guy, but I think you make a good point. You can't fight the way Diego F Sanchez has fought in his career for very long and before it starts to take its toll on you. You know, he, he does seem like a very old 31 year old at this point. And, uh, that's why I said I would, I would like to see some indication from him that he's not quite done yet and that he can still be more than just a guy who's going to go out there and get into a wild brawl. I would like to see him, you know, be, be that guy that he was before who has good, good wrestling and just a tenacious attitude about finishing you once he gets you down. At the Obviously, same time, though, if he's being realistic about where he stands in the UFC right now, uh, Diego Sanchez is somebody who might ought to take a look at what happened to Yushin Okami recently and think about how that should affect his fighting style and his strategy. Because he also is a guy who I don't think anybody's under the impression that Diego Sanchez is going to become champion at this point anymore. It seems like that window has kind of closed for him uh, at whatever weight. Uh, I think that he's also a guy who's been around long enough that his salary is up there. And again, like we talk about, uh, you know, the years of service guys have put in with the UFC. But at a certain point, those years work against you. That it's it's evidence that look how long you've been around and you haven't got there to the very top yet. Therefore, that just makes us feel more confident that you're not ever going to get there. I think he's one of those guys that has to be thinking about that right now because his uh, fight with Gomi not terribly exciting. And you get to this point in your career. Uh, as a UFC fighter where if you know you're not going to be the champion, if you know that you know gatekeeper might be the best you can hope for, then you got to be the fight of the night guy. you got to be dependable for a, you know, rock'em, sock'em, robots kind of fight and, and put on a really entertaining show in order to justify your continued existence in the UFC. I wouldn't be surprised if he's kind of feeling that pressure, like torn in a couple different ways. On one hand, you know, winning keeps you in the UFC, you know, losing can knock you out of it, but you know, you also have got to sh like justify your presence and, and, and prove your value somehow. And if it's not going to be the guy who's rocketing to the top, then it's got to be the guy who's consistently putting on entertaining fights. And for him, a lot of times those entertaining fights have come at the expense of his face. Yeah, and I don't think you really ever have to worry about Diego Sanchez not being an exciting fighter. I feel like that was one of the things that made that Takanori Gomi fight so weird and kind of uh, uh, led people to question whether or not maybe Diego Sanchez was injured or something heading into it because it just seemed like such an out-of-character performance for him. I guess the only thing I was trying to say is that he can still be exciting without being somebody's punching bag. You know That's what I true. mean? Like He was exciting back in the days when he literally pounded a hole in poor Brian Gassaway's skull that you know that beat out like he had to have surgery to get a hole patched on the inside of his face 
which I'm sure sucks when you make like $2,000 or whatever (laughs) to show up and fight Diego Sanchez. But I, you know, I do think you're right in that he could be a guy that is at that weird stage in his career where he doesn't seem like he's going to be in the champion, but he's making kind of a lot of money. And that could, that sometimes I think leads the, the UFC to, to, jockey you to the top of the cut list. Yeah. However, I mean, the, I think the UFC also shows some uh, favoritism towards those guys that were on that first season of The Ultimate Fighter because they all kind of took a leap of faith uh, to be on this show that nobody knew whether or not it was going to be a success or it was going to bomb or whatever. And Diego's in there harnessing the power of the storm. He was in there harnessing the power of a, of a summer storm to, to go out and win one of his fights. And I think that the UFC sees – like it feels like they owe those guys a debt of gratitude because that they look certainly look at that first season of the ultimate fighter as the thing that put the UFC really on the map with the mainstream. Uh, and you know, I agree with you saying that he, he doesn't seem like he's a guy who's about to be champion, but like I said, his only loss at lightweight is to BJ Penn in that title fight. And I think like if you wanted to sell him as a title contender, Obviously, a good place to start is beating Gilbert Melendez. And then if you wanted to, I think you could you could make a case for him as one of the top guys in that division. Whether or not that happens, I think all depends on what we see this weekend, where he certainly is a is a prohibitive betting underdog. But we'll see. Uh, well, lastly, before we, we go on this, though, we should talk a little bit about Gilbert Melendez. Uh, the the fight with Benson Henderson was so close. He can't, you know. One judge sees things a little bit differently there, or maybe he pushes the pace a little harder in one of those rounds, uh, and he could easily be UFC lightweight champion right now, or at least have come away from that night with the UFC lightweight championship. Uh, now he's in this fight, and it, this one seems like the one where, oh, okay, you, you jumped right into the title fight. It was a tough one. Now you fight Diego Sanchez. If you're in Gilbert Melendez's shoes right now, you got to beat Diego Sanchez. You oh, just yeah. got to. Yeah, and I think if you come out and wax Diego Sanchez, you're able to keep your name, you know, as part of that group that's going to be involved in this uh, Anthony Pettis, Josh Thompson, TJ Grant uh, yeah. round robin tournament or whatever <laughs> that we're going to end up having to have. And the longer TJ Grant sits out, the better it is for you. And he has a good opportunity here now that Benson Henderson is no longer the champ. He doesn't have to, like, make that difficult case for another shot at the same champion that he already lost to. Uh, now you look at a fight, uh, Gilbert Melendez and Anthony Pettis on paper. That seems a lot more exciting. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, look, we all know Gilbert Melendez is one of the top lightweights in the world. I think that this is just a fight for him where he has to come out and look good in order in order to keep his name amongst those elite fighters at 155 pounds and give the UFC a really easy opportunity to be like, no one stops Diego Sanchez like that. We haven't seen anyone handle Diego Sanchez like that since BJ Penn. So if you're Gilbert Melendez, you just got to kind of be Gilbert Melendez in this fight. I have a question. Can we actually sell that soundbite that you just cut right there to the UFC? Because we, we could use the money. We will sell anything. <laughs> anyway, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll uh, we'll move on to round three. Uh, ben, you probably saw it today on Twitter the uh, that Conor McGregor made some waves by responding to a fan who asked him... Uh, if it was the last night on earth, who he would rather spend it with, uh, either Misha Tate or Ronda Rousey. I guess his, his family is just off the table. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of those situations where you would have wanted that to be a one-way conversation on Twitter, not necessarily <laughs> one of those questions that you would want to respond to. Uh, you know, but, but in his in his bid to be one of the most outlandish and outspoken UFC fighters on Twitter, Conor McGregor responded with a quote off the chronic where he said that he would like to have, and I'm quoting now, one of them riding dick while the other one is licking his toes. 
with a bunch of S's at the end of it. Huh. Huh. Are you fucking kidding me? I guess is is what I have to ask about that. I know Conor McGregor, fun loving guy. He's trying to crack a joke here, uh, but I think it came off kind of ugly and kind of seems like maybe sexual harassment of his peers. Which, when you're on Twitter, man, it's not it's not the direction you want to go. Ain't nobody trying to lick your toes, Conor McGregor. Come yeah. on, man. Are you fucking kidding fucking me? Kidding me, Jed? My, are you fucking kidding me? Goes out in a kind of a different tone uh to uh muay thai hall of famer uh melch Romenor, who came on the recent episode of the ultimate fighter uh and as you have seen in the, the viral video that i showed you earlier today uh proceeded to demonstrate uh his kicking ability by breaking a baseball bat with a kick now first of all it's tough enough to watch because like it's kind of sizing up the bat he, you know, taps his shin bone against the wood. And yeah. Ugh, just that sickening, sound. Just a sickening sound. Yeah. It just reminds you of like getting up in the middle of the night and banging your, your shin on the, the edge of the bed and then hopping around and shouting profanity. And for him, it's just the warm up. It's just the warm up that he does before he goes ahead and breaks a bat with his kick. But then afterwards, as if to try and impart some lesson that all the fighters can take away from this display, um, he says that really you just have to condition your brain to take that pain into an alternate universe somewhere for just that moment. Um, because the pain is really only a few seconds. Just, just in that moment. Uh, to which I say, are you fucking kidding me? If I try and kick a bat, my shin is going to hurt for quite some time. Weeks, weeks, maybe months. Yeah, it's not gonna be just a few seconds that my shin is contacting the bat. I think it has... Maybe a little less to do with your brain conditioning and more to do with that you've been a kickboxer for so long, you probably don't even really have any feeling in your shins anymore. Fucking kidding me? Breaking a bat with your leg? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, not many of the winning fighters on last week's Ultimate Fight Night card did a whole hell of a lot to help themselves out. From Tiago Silva missing weight again, to Dong Young Kim's fence grab that we talked about during Listener Mail against Eric Silva, to Jake Shields needing a split decision to defeat Damian Maya in a fight that not very many are touting as a fight of the year contender. I enjoyed that fight. I thought it was okay too. It's just I feel like the the actual or the the overriding public sentiment was that it was boring. Well, that's because haters gonna hate, Chad. That's true. That's true. I will say though, the lasting memory to emerge from this event was obviously Rusmar Paul Harris getting fired for holding a heel hook a little bit too long against Mike Pierce. Ben, obviously, you have thrust yourself into the center of this controversy this week with your big mouth. Uh, well, let's just start with Paul Harris himself. Why he do that? Why he do that? Indeed, that's the question, isn't it? Well. Yeah, and I think that is the question. And, and, but at a certain point, I think he's done it enough and has shown such a consistent pattern of behavior with that, that at a certain point, I don't even know if it matters why he do that. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, it, we, we obviously, we want to know because we can't help but watch something like that and wonder, what the hell is this guy's problem? I mean, I watched that fight 
you know how I do on the Wednesday night shows that I'll watch it up until a point and then pause it and then go to my jujitsu class and then watch the others when I get home. And uh, I didn't know that that's how you do. Well, that's but how that I also do. Also doesn't surprise me. Uh, but that was the last fight I watched before I went to jujitsu and paused it. And as soon as I got there, pretty much everybody at jujitsu just wanted to talk about that heel hook with everybody kind of agreeing. What the hell, man? Why don't you just let him go when the referee dives on you? Let it go. Yeah, that should be the easiest part. It should be. It really is the easiest part. And yet for him, I mean, he did it before in the UFC, again with a heel hook. Uh, there's that fight from uh, before he was in the UFC where he chokes a guy unconscious with a rear naked choke, and then they have to pry his arms off. And you can see the other guy's corner jumping in there and uh, making their displeasure known. So it's not as if he didn't know that that's an issue. You know, he's been suspended for it in the past. Uh, it, it's just kind of baffling at this point. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you got a couple different uh, interpretations coming out after this. Uh, Alex Davis, his manager, says uh, he just kind of zones out, just kind of spaces out, does it subconsciously, doesn't realize he's doing it. Um, and to back that up, I think you can look at some other fights where he's done spacey kind of shit, not necessarily that, like uh, the fight with Nate Marquardt where he tried to heel hook him, Marquardt pulled out, uh, Paul Harris seemed to think that he was his leg was greased or something and took that opportunity as soon as he pulled out to turn to the referee and try talking to him about it mid-fight to where Marquardt just decided, okay, I'm just going to haul off and punch you in the face while you're having that conversation, and then the fight was over. Or the one against Dan Miller in Brazil where he was beaten on him, thought that the fight was stopped for whatever reason, and decided to go celebrate on top of the cage when the fight was not yet over. Those are In his defense, shit. that works 50% of the time. It does, it does work 50% of the time. So, you know, it does seem like maybe he he zones out sometimes and isn't exactly sure what's going on. But to me, if that's the argument you want to make, and by the way, he did not make that argument himself. He tried to uh, tried to portray it all as a misunderstanding and doesn't think he did anything wrong there. Uh to me, if you're if you're saying, well, this guy can't really control himself, I mean, that's that's more reason to have him not fighting in the UFC. Yeah, it, to me, it's really inexplicable because e even if you're going to advance any of the arguments that I've seen advanced about Paul Harris's mental state, even if you're going to say he zones out, even if you're going to say he's doing this as, as like a, a conscious strategy to try to scare future opponents, even if you say he's a, he's a dirtbag, which I think is what you said. Uh, so it's one possibility in, in your, your column on MMA junkie this past week. Even no matter what your explanation is, this seems inexplicable inexplicable to me that this would be this guy's problem it's such a bizarre problem to have and ultimately a totally strange way for rusamar paul harris a guy that we all know grew up very poor in brazil just a very strange way for him to squander what is undoubtedly the best opportunity of his life and one that you can't even really explain because even if you are totally zoned out during a fight as manager alex davis says that he is the zoning out process should end as soon as you win, right? As soon as the referee jumps in to stop the fight, that's when you should zone back in and be like, oh, I won. I don't have to give Mike Pierce's leg an extra crank before I let it go. It's just very strange. It's very... uh very weird, and I think ultimately sad in that, like I said, this is probably Rusamar Paul Harris's best 
uh, opportunity in life to make money to fight for the UFC and also sad that it totally undermines what is otherwise an unbelievably awesome performance against Mike Pierce where you come down to 170 and just whip his ass in 30 seconds in a way that I don't think we've seen anybody really handle Mike Pierce like that Pierce a guy that that you know, not considered one of the top contenders at welterweight, but also a dude who is just tough and is going to be a tough fight for anybody at that weight. So imp- really impressive performance by Paul Harris here and and sad that he totally ruined it by then giving the UFC the world's easiest three foot putt to make and firing him <laughs> days later, because if you're the UFC, you can't have that guy. There's no no room for that in the sport at the highest level. When you're trying to become a mainstream sport entity, you can't have a guy who is going to endanger other fighters by holding a submission hold too long. A thing that mainstream Americans already think is weird, right? Submission holds. You can't have a dude that is going to go out of his way to try to injure people using them. Well, that that one was not even necessarily holding it too long, but you can see in the reverse angle uh, replay that – you know, Pierce is tapping on his way down to the ground. And, you know, I don't necessarily fault you for refusing to, to tap just or for refusing to let go as soon as you feel the guy tap because you do need to make sure the referee saw that shit. And the, when the ref steps in, that's when you have to let go. But the ref throws himself on the two of them. And there's a moment where you can see Paul Harris kind of look down and see the ref and then crank it one more time. Like, not even just holding on to it, but cranking it and I, a lot of people made a big deal of yeah, but it was only like 1.27 seconds or something like that man i don't know if you've ever been in a heel hook but it doesn't take that much especially if you've already reached that threshold where you know you're stuck you're in it i give up and then the guy says all right here's one more for the road that's not going to take very long and it that's the part that can you know pop a knee ligament real easy and you know alter and possibly even end a guy's career. So uh, those people, I, I hope they realize what they're saying. I mean, it'd be like if when Ronda Rousey turned Misha Tate's arm into Play-Doh, if she had done that in the, the instant right after Misha Tate tapped. You know, that's kind of the thing. And I, I hate people comparing it to uh, the end of the Dung Hong Kim uh, Eric Silva fight where Kim knocks him down with a big left hand and then follows him up and, and smashes him one more time while he's on the ground. He looks like he's probably out. Like you don't need that extra punch. But the difference there is the referee hadn't stopped the fight yet. For all Kim knows, uh, the ref is, is letting that one go and you don't want to wait around to see if the guy's going to wake up. Like I completely understand in that instance, the ref hasn't said anything, the fight's not over, you run up there and you give him one more just to make sure that you have that win. That's completely understandable. Brutal, yes, but still understandable within the confines of the sport. This, when the referee is lying on the top of you, uh, top of, of the both of you, that's when you know the fight is over. You have to. Yeah. And, and the thing I think too is that we have to, uh, I don't want to get weird about this, but we have to maintain the, the sacredness of the tap. When a right. guy is trying to give up, that's what that's what we use as defense against the people who say that MMA is a barbaric blood sport, right? Is that at any moment you can tap. We have the submissions game so that you you know there's not as much head trauma as there is in boxing. Uh, you know, and when you feel like you're in danger, you can always tap. You get out, the fight's over with honor, there's no shame in it. It's how a fight ends. But if a guy is sitting there and the other guy is trying to quit, means he stopped defending the submission he, he's he's left himself at your mercy and you're cranking on the stuff uh, i mean that's that's kind of unforgivable especially when you've done it as many times as he has 
Yeah, so at this point, Paul Harris has been fired. Bellator has said that they're not interested in him. Uh, he'll land somewhere uh, because he, I, th- I think he's still a, a top fighter. He's still a uh, maybe even a more interesting commodity now at this point because, I, you know, if he goes over and fights in, in Bama or World Series of Fighting or wherever, we're going to watch at this point just yeah. to see if any weirdness uh, ensues. So uh, he'll he'll get another shot somewhere else. Whether or not he'll ever be back in the UFC again, I don't know. It's, it's, it's always a never-say-never never situation in the fight game. You know, we've seen guys come back from, from what seemed like lifetime bans before. So we'll, and, and I don't know if he deserves a lifetime ban right. for this. And I don't know that that was ever 100% confirmed either. That we, I think a lot of people jump to conclusions in thinking that he would never be back. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. With the, with the Rusamar Paul Hara soap opera. Anyway, let's do, uh, just saying stuff and then we'll, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, uh, you know, Junior Dos Santos, obviously one of MMA's better boxers, uh, for MMA, but recently he's been doing the thing that we sometimes see where an MMA fighter who's pretty good at boxing talks about how, you know, he might, might go box the Klitschko brothers. Feels like he'd do pretty well against the, the Klitschko brothers uh, in, in a boxing match. We've heard this before. Heard it from, from Andy Silva. We've even heard the occasional boxer talk about how they could step into MMA and whip somebody's ass. I'm just saying, man, it is 2013. Haven't we already seen that these are two different sports and that you guys aren't really going to do it? You're just going to talk about it to get some headlines. You're probably not ever going to go and actually fight each other in that person's chosen discipline. I'm just saying, stop it. We we don't need this. It's pointless. It's just tiresome. I'm done with it. Just saying. Just saying. It's weird that you never see like the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team be like, we're going to play the Patriots, man. I think we could beat them in American football. It's just something that doesn't happen in no, other sports. For good reason, because it's dumb. <laughs> this week, Ben, I'm just saying that we need to get Holly Holm in the UFC. I don't know if you were able to see her fight last Friday in Legacy Fighting Championships. She approved, uh, improved to 5-0. and She hasn't totally fought anybody yet in her MMA career, and at Legacy Fighting, she was involved in one of the scariest mismatches that I can ever remember seeing in an MMA fight uh, as she was beating up Alaska's Nikki, Nikki Knudsen. Uh, it looked like a grown-up beating up a 14-year-old girl. It, in, in front of a gift shop? No, this one was inside in an actual arena. So, did the arena have a gift shop? I don't know, but it did. That in, in and of itself lent it an air of credibility that the other uh, Muay Thai fights we've seen on Access TV did not have. But Holly Holm beating up Nikki Knudsen looked like the black belt instructor shows up at the white belt class, only with real punches and kicks. Uh, you know, to her credit, also Nikki Knudsen brought to the fight this sort of weird combination of being totally outclassed, but also incredible gameness, which is part of what made it so unbelievably scary. And I, I don't want to read too much into a mismatch like that, but from where I'm standing, Holly Holm, if she has any takedown defense or ground game at all, she passes the eye test. The stand-up looks nasty. She obviously comes from a great camp in uh, Jackson Winklejohn, and at this point, I think she would make a pretty good addition to the 105 or 135 pound weight class in the UFC. And frankly, if the best that we can get for her on the independent circuit are squash matches with the Nikki Knudsen's of the world, it's time for Sean Shelby to give her a call. I'm just saying. 
Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week, uh, probably breaking down all the crazy stuff that happens at UFC 166. But for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Jed, you know what I say about the combination of gameness and...